This is the California Liberty Project Podcast. And welcome back to the California Liberty Project Podcast. Once again, I thank you all for being here, for downloading, for listening. Maybe we'll be able to put this one up on YouTube. We're trying to grow that YouTube channel. We will see how this discussion goes. I'm really looking forward to today's guest and discussion. And our guest today is Mike Termat. But before we get to Mike, just really quickly, do make sure to follow this podcast on Apple, on Google, Spotify, even Audible, wherever you can. And then check out our brand new and growing Rumble and YouTube channels. And then a lot of our social media posting, as many of you know, is at California Liberty Project, all one word on Instagram, and sometimes even on Twitter as well. And that's at CA underscore Liberty underscore PROJ. So thank you once again for being here today. My name is Greg. And again, our guest is Mike Termat. And I, I hope I am pronouncing that correctly. Mike will tell me here. Mike, is that first and foremost, is that the correct pronunciation? Uh, last and least, uh, that is the uh, correct pronunciation. So okay. uh, we got that going for us. Awesome. Okay. Mike has a very interesting resume. Uh, who is Mike? Mike is a candidate for the Libertarian Party presidential nomination. So it's a real honor to be able to talk to a legitimate presidential candidate. And Mike is also, I mean, he's got a fascinating background, but Mike is an Austrian school economist. And as many of you know, I'm a big adherent and um, certainly a fan of the Austrian School of Economics. Uh, So Mike holds a PhD in economics, and he is also a pro-reform police officer. In Florida, it looks like he was a police officer from 2010 to 2021, if I'm seeing that correctly. And I think we're going to have a fascinating conversation. So Mike, thank you very much for joining us on the California Liberty Project today. Thank you. Uh, it's absolutely my pleasure to uh, to be with you, Greg. You have a, a great program, and I just couldn't be happier to be a part of it today. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for your time. Um, so I gave a little bit of a kind of a postage stamp, a, a mini yep. bio there, uh, as far as all the interesting things or some of the interesting things that you've done. Can you can you fill in um, kind of color between the lines? Let us know what it is that um, our audience here today should should know about you and your background and, you know, what you're hoping to do with the, uh, the LP presidential nomination. Uh, that's a lot. I think the only really important thing uh, most uh, people inside the Libertarian Party need to know for sure is that I am a, a libertarian. Uh, it's nice to have been with you. Uh, talk to you next time. Okay. Um, very good. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's, the, that's the most important part. Yes. I come to libertarianism uh, through what I would call the market efficiency side. If I can characterize libertarianism, broad brush, um, as having two sides, one yes. being uh, an ethical side right, and, and one being the efficient way to run the, run the economy and, and to run our lives side. I definitely grew up on on the on what a lot of people call the right side, which is to say, I came to the idea that libertarianism was the way to go because the world just works better as an empirical matter, as a practical matter. Uh, ethics completely aside for mm-hmm. a moment, right. Uh, the the right way to run an economy is to let people make choices for themselves. Uh, capitalism is the free market side of freedom. And we now know uh, there is no real serious debate left in the world, I don't believe, as to what's the the more efficient way to allow an economy to be run, whether that's uh, through freedom or through top-down government mandates that we would typically call socialism. That debate is largely uh, over. There are a few people out there that still haven't gotten the memo. But that's, that's the way I grew up into libertarianism. And it wasn't really until maybe 15 years ago, uh, that I really grew into the, what I would call the ethical side of libertarianism. I became a police officer in 2010, as you said, I was on the road for 11 and a half years in Broward County, Florida. It was only a little while before then 
that I really got into the ethical side of libertarianism, which is to say, even if it were not the best way to run an economy, right? Even if for some weird reason it were true that socialism worked better as a practical matter, the government still, ethically speaking, wouldn't have uh, the authority, uh, wouldn't have the right, if you will, to compromise our rights, to tell us what to do, to make decisions for us. Uh, you know, efficiency aside, it is up to every American, every person, every citizen of the world to run their lives uh, to their own standards. And that is what I would call the ethical side of uh, libertarianism. So uh, I came to it uh, eventually from, from both sides. But you're right, I grew up as an economist. Uh, I worked for banks, uh, went to graduate school in, uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, after uh, I was an engineering student, and, a, and then I went to business school immediately after that, worked for a couple of banks, came to Washington, D.C. for graduate school. I was at the George Washington University, and I was really lucky to be there because it's a very pro-market, pro-freedom environment. The George Washington University Economics Department is what we used to call a rational expectations school, which is a descendant of the Chicago school, which, of course, is uh, the American descendant of the Austrian school. So it was a real comfortable uh, place to be, to, to go to school. I went to work for the White House for a couple of years and other government uh, and international agencies, eventually went to work as a free market advocate. In the, in the banking industry. And a partner and I launched a business uh, educating bankers and other financial services professionals. We ran that for several years. Later on, I taught economics at a couple of universities and even worked as, as a substitute teacher in the public schools in Broward County before eventually fulfilling a, a lifelong dream of uh, becoming a police officer. It's something that I had wanted to do for many, many, many years. I'm a big believer in public service. It was a tremendous experience, a, a big change, of course, but I had uh, put it off and put it off and put it off and just couldn't put it off anymore. I was uh, 49 in the police academy, so I worked as a cop from age 49 to, uh, to 60 until just about a year and a half ago. So it was a, a great experience and a real uh, diversifying experience, if you will. All right. So, Mike, um, given that you've studied, you've been a scholar and have a PhD in economics, um, what led you into more of the Austrian tradition, uh, which is, I don't want to say heterodox, but it's definitely not the mainstream classical economics or certainly not the Keynesian um, position. But I know part of that is where you studied. But what led you into that school of, of economics and free market thinking? Yeah, part of it is where I studied. You got that right. Of course, as an undergrad, I was an undergrad way back in uh, 79, 80, 81, 82. And, and the universities were still teaching Keynesianism back then. So that was kind of strange. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you're right. A lot of it was grad school because, as I had mentioned, we were a philosophical descendant of the Austrian school. I had read some uh, Milton Friedman uh, earlier on. Um, when I was a freshman in college, my dad had me reading Milton Friedman. So nice. I had a bit of an introduction there. And of course, uh, you know, road, road to serfdom is a, a real eye opener in terms of being able to put together what I would call the ethical side and the efficiency side of the, of, of the world and how economics works. Um, and of course, uh, you know, to me, that is really at the heart of Austrian economics is the launching pad for, philosophically speaking, everything that came, that came after that. Um, yes. The other yes. things that are real important to me that I spent a lot of time exploring during graduate school are the skepticism of how we build models, uh, the skepticism of, of, of being able to control monetary policy in a way that uh, even modern Orthodox would teach us. Uh, Milton Friedman did a good job of documenting, for example, the fact that the Federal Reserve has not uh, contributed in a positive way toward mitigating the boom-bust cycle. 
These right. things um, are things that economists don't spend enough time talking about now. And I really believe that, that we ought to. Uh, again, there is a, an ethical side to the way that the Federal Reserve operates, and there's an empirical side. We might argue as libertarians, as Austrians, that we need a harder currency just because inflation is unethical. And that is uh, all true. The idea of having a fiat currency that continuously erodes our purchasing power and our wealth, that is something that we should not tolerate as a society. But just as interestingly and just as importantly, I believe, is the empirical side, which is to say, best efforts notwithstanding. The Federal Reserve has demonstrated itself to be a 100-year experiment that has effectively failed. Failed. It hasn't worked. It hasn't worked. And and maybe failed isn't the right word, because if it's an experiment, you don't fail. You just find out it doesn't work. And in that sense, uh, we can declare ourselves successful in terms of discovering that it doesn't work and and move on. We need a harder currency. We need to take away the discretion of the Fed in terms of controlling monetary policy. I believe that we need to go to the uh, Milton Friedman idea of uh, capping uh, or at least controlling with a rules-based system the money supply uh, in the world of the American dollar so that to the extent to which we saw any deflation or any inflation, you would be able to interpret, markets would be able to figure out whether that inflation or deflation was due uh, to changes in the business cycle or whether it was due to some weird thing going on with money supply. Because if you, if you had a completely rules-based system for money supply, you would know that those weird changes were not because of changes in money supply. Today, the markets are always trying to figure out what's the effect of Fed policy versus what's the effect of what's going on at the business cycle. And part of the problem we have is that it's almost impossible to tease that out and figuring out what's really affecting prices. So right. we've got to we've got to end that. Um, so whether you know, I'm, I'm not an advocate of going all the way back to a gold standard because I fear deflation almost as much as I fear inflation. But if you had a rules-based system that the Federal Reserve could not bust, that just said the money stock was going to increase by a certain fixed percent per year, that could be zero Uh, It could be 1% or 2% to accommodate economic growth, which strikes me as the most appropriate. But have that number fixed, uh, you certainly would be able to to interpret the changes in prices and markets would be much, much more healthy. Sure. Right. With something tied to an actual uh, physical commodity, some kind of currency that's that's tied to to gold in some way, shape, or, or form. just a number. Yeah, just say it's going to increase by two percent a year, the money stock, and and that's it. Um, It'd be better than what we have, have today, for sure. Any fluctuation? What's well, you're exactly right. I mean, we can all have a food fight about what the what the right rules ought to be, but I definitely believe. Uh, there is no argument against moving away from Fed discretion and moving toward a rules-based system. Yeah, right. I think so much of the the confusion, the turmoil today is just because people don't even know quite what to expect. I mean, maybe they wish for or they expect for continually artificially low interest rates. But at the end of the day, I mean, I think markets just want to be able to look ahead three months, six months, a year and kind of know that there's going to be some stability, right? That is exactly, exactly right. And, and we know, you know, this philosophy of uh, leaning against the business cycle, which admittedly seemed like a good idea in the 60s and 70s, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't want to say the people who developed these uh, aspirations were morons or evil. They just turned out to be wrong right. in terms of whether or not it, it could be pulled off. Um I have every respect for the economists who have worked for the Federal Reserve System over the years. I've worked very closely with hundreds of them, literally, uh, over the years. I've met with the Federal Reserve Board and the boardroom itself. 
Uh, my research into the banking industry has been publicly cited by a Federal Reserve chairman. Uh, I've worked very closely on many regulatory issues on behalf of the banking industry, trying to reduce regulations and trying to reduce the regulatory burden that financial institutions are required to, to bear. Mm. So I have every respect for them. They, they do the best job they can. But notwithstanding the enormous brain power that's been dedicated to this issue, we see now that it just it, it can't work. Are they cognizant, and I, I mean the folks within the Federal Reserve System, are they cognizant of uh, the extent to which people perceive that they've been politicized and used as political hacks, tools, and puppets, you know, just to keep one president or the other president's approval numbers up, i.e. by juicing the economy, by stim stimulating the economy, so-called. Yeah, my experience is that it's a mixed bag. Uh, in other words, there are those at the, in the Fed system who are completely aware of that, who, who lament the extent to which they have been politicized, mm -hmm. uh, who are as despondent as I believe they should be uh, about their prospects going forward for distancing themselves from that. But there are others who say, look, we are politically independent as a technical matter. And look, on paper, that's supposed to be true, right? Yeah. Um, and so we do stay at arm's length. And this is much you know, to do about nothing. We are still the smartest kids in the, in the room. Uh, so you ought to continue to leave it up to us. And we'll continue to fight for our political independence. There are those who still adhere to that. Uh, philosophy, whether it's 50-50 or not, uh, I don't know. Hmm. But I do know that to to make this work in the long run, we need presidents who are willing to appoint Federal Reserve Board governors who believe, as we do, that we need a much harder currency, mm -hmm. that we need to take away Fed discretionary policy and replace it with a rules-based system. My plan to end the Fed altogether starts with that piece uh, the second piece is to make their regulatory environment completely at the discretion of their banking clients. In other words, banks, I believe, ought to have the option about whether or not to be regulated by the Federal Reserve System or not. Right. Most banks have an option today about whether to be Fed regulated or alternatively be regulated by their state and by the Treasury Department. So there is some flexibility, but I would make all uh, bank regulation uh, optional for commercial banking organizations. And I would spin off the Federal Reserve banks, the regional banks, into separate organizations that will have to uh, uh, fight to remain uh, useful in the world. And if they fail, they fail. And then the third piece, uh, the third part of my plan to end the Federal Reserve system uh, is uh, to take away the Fed balance sheet, transfer it to the Treasury Department and make it subject to legislation so that we can get rid of these midnight bank bailouts mm -hmm. and bailouts of other organizations as well. The, the Congress can still do something dumb and pass legislation to bail somebody out, but that's a lot more difficult than what we see uh, today, which is the Fed can just willy-nilly bail out anybody they want with an hour's notice. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think there are a lot of issues with the, the Fed system. And that's why people, I don't think they look at us as crazy anymore when when we're saying end the Fed. It's kind of a nice heuristic, right? Or it's kind of a nice placeholder. But it addresses, I think, all of these problems and all of this um, chaos that's introduced into the economy, be, economy because it is, it's a central repository for interest rates, right? Yeah. It creates problems yeah. right from the get-go. Uh, uh it does. It does uh, create problems right from the get-go. And I think you're right in the sense that people don't look at us quite as uh, uh, quite the way that they used to. I think that there's a growing recognition in the United States, Greg, that a lot of our problems, certainly economically, and a lot of our other problems, are created by bad public policy. I think that there's a preparedness among the American people to hear a message that is a lot more institutional, a lot more fundamental. I think people are ready for the most transformational ideas. Certainly my campaign is putting those out there because we believe that we need to 
help the American people get comfortable with these ideas uh, because mm-hmm. that's where the solutions are. Uh, if, if you're out there saying, alternatively, if you're out there saying inflation is naughty, uh, we should have less of it. I, I, I'm sorry. That's what a Republican would tell you. That's what a Democrat would tell you. And that's what they've been yeah. saying for decades. That right. is not a new message. It is not a solution. And it's nothing that I have an interest in, in talking about. We need more fundamental and more institutional change. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, let me let me shift gears a little bit because I want to make sure to, to ask you about um, some additional issues as well. And certainly, again, with your really interesting background, being in law enforcement, being a pro-reform police officer, I think you'll have an interesting perspective. So, you know, being here in California and in other places around the, the nation too, but, you know, we are seeing in a huge uptick and increase in homelessness, in drug use, drug use out on the streets. I'm not talking about recreational use of marijuana. I'm talking about people killing themselves in the street or on private property or on public property, which is its own issue. But, um, you know, you go to a place like San Francisco or even large parts of of Los Angeles and many other urban centers around the country. And we're just seeing lawlessness. We're seeing... Uh, you know, groups of teens here, famously, it went viral in Chicago, running around victimizing innocent people, uh, property yep. damage. You know, as libertarians, yep. we are concerned with peace and private property and keeping keeping order. And the so protection wh- of individual rights, and that Correct. includes your property rights. Correct. Course. That's right. And even if, if we're going to have something called a public sidewalk, you know, public and scare quotes, um, what do we do about people being a threat to others, you know, i.e. spreading disease or um, violence right on the streets. I mean, what is a liberty-minded solution to the plague right now that's sweeping through so many of our California cities and other cities around the nation? I know that's a big question, but... uh, Well, it is a big question, and I don't want to come across uh, as though I'm trying to indicate that it's not, Right. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to suggest that any one particular silver bullet is going to take care of all this. Sure. There are some things that we can do to move in the right direction. And I think it's extremely important to do so. Uh, there are two big pieces. One is police reform is one is ending the war on drugs. Uh, I don't know which one you want to talk about first. Uh, either one. Yeah. Or let's, both. <laughs> let's talk about police just for just for a couple of minutes. And let me start out by saying there's a couple of really dumb ideas out there, one on the Republican side, one on the Democrat side, that we need to get away from as quickly and as fundamentally as possible. One is the Republican idea of back the blue no matter what, in every case, as much as possible, back the blue. Um, I'm as pro-cop as they come, right, as a police officer, I have friends who are cops. I plan on that being the case the rest of my life. Yeah. And I certainly wouldn't say something that stupid, right? Yeah. Uh, no, you, 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 you don't back up a group of people no matter what in every circumstance, no matter what happens. That's just silliness. And it stands in the way of the reforms that we need to make. Mm-hmm. And on the Democratic side, this uh, idea which Democrats at this point have to own this idea of defund the police. Um, it's, it's a bigger and dumber idea than merely cutting back resources. It's cutting back uh, your faith in your public servants. And both of those elements uh, have got to be put back under the rock as quickly as possible. We, as, as communities, communities have the right to decide how they want to enforce their criminal code. Right. And communities have the right to decide what elements of the criminal code they, they believe in, what they want emphasized, what they want dropped, how they want to edit that from one year to the next. And they have the right to decide how they want their police departments to work. Sure. Communities, uh, look, data show and anecdotal evidence also show that communities are largely pro-cop. And the more 
uh, a community is poor, the more that it is affected by crime. Interestingly, the more it uh, includes uh, racial minorities, for example, those communities are the most pro-cop because they realize that police officers, when managed correctly, and that's what we're going to talk about, with when oversight, managed correctly, yeah. Yeah. provide an important service that is necessary. Now, having said that, the reform has to come. Uh, police culture is slowly going in the right direction, but it needs to be accelerated, and there are specific things that we can do to accelerate that. The, the one thing that I spend a lot of time talking about I believe I have a an opportunity to have a better view on a couple of these issues than your average cop, having been an economist. Right. Uh, the big one that I talk about is replacing qualified immunity uh, with uh, a mandate for cops to carry their own liability insurance, like surgeons, for example, like others in high liability industries, so mm-hmm. that if you're if you're bad at your job. Uh, you'll eventually get priced out of the market in terms of high premium rates. Yeah. And one of the things that is real important to the idea is that a third party outside insurance carrier, an outside insurance provider, will provide a check on the system that we would normally want to be provided by local politicians, but local politicians have demonstrated their inability to do even a halfway decent job of holding police departments accountable. Oh, they've gone off the rails, right? Yeah. They've with gone demagoguery. Off the, yeah. They've gone off the rail. And so often, uh, as you know, police departments have a tendency to politically capture their leadership. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, their unions in many cases uh, can be relatively powerful political actors and so nobody wants to stand up to them. I get it. That's human nature. It's a shame. Sure. But, you know, I get it. But having said that, we shouldn't just shrug our shoulders and tolerate that. We need someone to come in from the outside that holds police accountable, that won't put up with the bullshit that is thrown up in the way of accountability and transparency by the unions. Mm-hmm. So if you want to get your insurance, your insurance company is going to need access to every bit of information that's available. And that goes from training records to reports you've prepared and cases you've been involved with, all kinds of experiences, uh, supervisory records, probably a 360 review, Mm -hmm. uh, court experience, suits you've been involved with, complaints that have been filed, the whole ball of wax, all the things that you would expect to be involved in holding someone accountable and and rating someone's uh, ability to stay out of trouble. In in short, what we want is to bring market forces to bear on an industry where they have not up until now. We want it to be more like other businesses, more like other industries, so that in the long run, good cops get paid more money. Uh, Mediocre cops get paid less money. Right. Bad cops get fired. Right. And what you're saying is anathema, of course, to the unions, but it makes total sense, right? To kind of introduce more of a privatization element to things. And it's not fully privatized. And I know there are a lot of folks who are saying, you know, privatize security forces, and I'm, I'm all ears to that. But for right now, looking at things on the ground, as you're discussing, we do have a system where we have public police forces and police officers. And I think what you're saying makes total sense introduce some reforms yep. that are headed toward the direction of privatization. And and even the great Murray Rothbard kind of wrote about this, you know, with having liability. If, if uh, a police officer is out of control or if there's police brutality or one of these terrible cases, if it does happen, there should be due process, but then there should also be this kind of personal liability uh, scenario where people could be covered. No question about it. And, and of course, qualified immunity doesn't affect criminal cases. If, you know, you commit a crime, you know, full stop, uh, you got to be held accountable. And, you know, Greg, one of the things that's so important about getting rid of qualified immunity is not the fact that it affects so many cases, because it really doesn't. The thing that's so important about it is that police officers believe that it's important and communities on the other side believe that it's important. 
one believes it's important to protecting them. The other one believes it's important, uh, a stumbling block that's in the way. And, and this really undermines cops being held accountable. Courts naturally give police officers a certain amount of deference. I believe that it has gone way too far and too much deference is accorded to police officers. So this would be one way of sending a signal, if you will, that it's time to, uh, to peel that back. And, you know, to your point, you said something really interesting about privatizing police. We do need greater competition. Speaking of making it more like other businesses, we need more competition among agencies themselves, not just among officers. Right. So that, for example, in the town that I worked for, the town only had two choices. One was our police department or one was the sheriff's office. Okay. And every once in a while, they would remind us that they could dump our police department, fire all of us, hire the sheriff's office to come in and police our community. Right. And that was one way to hold us accountable a, a little bit. But how much better would it be if there were three or four agencies, whether they were private sector agencies or anything else, uh, vying for a contract to police our community. That would be a really good yeah. thing. And so I, I think that states need to do a little bit better job with their standing uh, legislation, accommodating the possibility of private sector organizations bidding on these contracts. Mm -hmm. Right now, it's a, it's a real challenge to, to imagine uh, burning through that public sector wall and offering to provide that on a contract, you're always going to have a public sector element. Yeah, Policing is by its nature, a geographic prospect. And so you're, you're necessarily going to need to pool people together to make decisions about how their communities are policed. And, and so naturally there's a, a public sector element to that. But certainly a private sector organization ought to be able to get together and uh, and bid on that contract. Mm -hmm. That would be a very good thing, I think. Yeah, and also in terms of competition, I'm just thinking like there needs to be a little bit more competition just in terms of our American system of federalism. How about local authorities yeah. guard their jurisdiction? You know, when the feds come marching in, if, if there's some god-awful gun crime or something like that, you know, God That's forbid, right. the, the local authorities can say, no, that we're enforcing our state laws here. ATF, FBI, right. you guys need to back off. This is not interstate crime or some constitutionally mandated thing. This is local That's right. crime. And sometimes right? they need to do a better job of that, but you're right. Yeah, yeah. And I think there needs to be even that competition, you know, in this so-called vertical federalism sense, you know, from federal yeah. to state to local, right? Yeah, no question about that. And to your other point uh, regarding uh, drugs and, of course, homelessness, which is uh, – in large part, not completely, but in large part, a drug problem. I believe that we need to end the criminalization and the prohibition uh, of drugs, both, once again, coming at libertarianism from the ethical side as well as the efficiency right. side, both because I believe the government doesn't have the authority to make rules about what you should be allowed to do with your body, right. but as an empirical matter. Yes. It's failed. Uh, we have, yeah. We have the evidence, right? It's failed. The war on drugs has failed. We have the evidence. It has failed. I would hate to be on the side of the argument trying to make the case that the war on drugs works or that more of it is going to work better. I just don't see what you would grab as evidence to suggest that that is a, a true thing. I think it's time to, even if you did not agree with us, even if you were a Republican or a Democrat and you did not like our uh, observation that the government did not have the authority to make rules for our bodily autonomy, even if that was your predilection, you would have to say it's time to try something different. Yes. Uh, continuing the same thing is is literally, as they used to say, insane. Uh and there are specific reasons and specific examples of that. I do believe that fentanyl is, in the main, a market problem. Uh, it is a fraud problem. It is a control problem. 
these are characteristics of a black market. They are not characteristics of an open market, of a market operating in daylight and freedom, sure. right? And this is the reason why uh, fentanyl-related overdose deaths have skyrocketed uh, in the past half dozen years. Yeah. Certainly, I did a lot more CPR on kids overdosing uh, than, you know, I, than I saw a drug bus, for example. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the good news for me personally is that I, you know, w- was able to avoid uh, working uh, in a anti-drug, uh, drug war uh, capacity. Yeah. Um, that was an option that was uh, available to me. So that was a, a good thing for me personally. But you see the effects of the black market every day when you work a diversified community uh, like I did. Oh, for sure. So you have to admit that it's just it's just not working. I do believe that our addiction problem in the United States is large. It is profound. It is terrifying. It's a shame. We do need to do a great deal about it. But that all has to be a medical discussion all of which is much more difficult when you drive it underground. Yes, in in a black market, so-called. That's right. Yeah, the black market really makes everything uh, 10 times more difficult. Uh, So, you know, we need to equip police officers, for example. Police officers are always going to be involved because we're the first, literally the first responders. But we need the vehicles to be able to say, whether it's police officer or the fire department, um, you know, the EMTs to be able to say, uh, you know, here, here, now, now that we saved your life, uh, you know, let's get you into a a, a rehab program. Let's get you into a place where you can, you can work on this. That's a a lot more safe path, uh, to, to your health and give people an option to get into a, a, a program that's going to save them in the long run, as opposed to, you know, so often we put people through courts that aren't even drug courts. They're just completely insensitive to the plight of individuals who are addicts. We all know that there are plenty of judges who are sensitive to the issue too, but so often they're not available and those courts are booked up. Or they want to uh, enforce like state mandated programs and this and that, you know, bureaucracies, taxpayers have to fund it. Many of which don't work. They don't work. And po- honestly, I don't want to be coerced to pay for someone else's drug treatment. You know, if it's private charity, if I can help some certain individual out, I am happy to do so. But um, yeah, right. they don't work. And I don't right. like the coercion. You know, if someone else wants to no, do no, that. No, no, there has to be an ele- element of opt-in or as any psychologist will tell you, you've started off on the wrong foot. You're doomed to failure. Yes. Yeah, that, that's right. That's right. And I think this is really important for, um, you know, small L libertarians and even the Libertarian Party to really think about. And I'm not I'm not talking to you. I'm not lecturing you personally, Mike. I mean, more broadly, you know, when we have this discussion about so many cities and particularly in California, because that's what I know best, our big cities here, even our midi- medium sized cities are just plagued by fentanyl, meth, um, people dying or overdosing in the streets. I mean, I can go a mile away over to the river. I can go to shopping centers and I can find several homeless people who appear to be high on meth or fentanyl and whatnot. Now, I don't know that for sure, but you can tell when someone's slumped over in the fentanyl crawl. Yeah, yeah. No, and, you're you're two thirds right. I'm sorry. Yeah, and, and I need to, we need to have this conversation about, okay, we got to go beyond just, and I'm, I'm including myself in this, we need to go beyond just, well, we need to legalize it and get the government off our back. Okay, okay, we we get it, right? But um, the question is really going beyond that, going beyond just the decriminalization, we need to have that discussion as far as what is humane? What kind of society do we want to live in? And we have to go past just decriminalize or legalize drugs. It's like, okay, well, that's one thing. That's a start. But what about the person who's literally overdosing here in the shopping center that I go to or my kids go to? How about that? How about restoring property rights for shopkeepers or business owners or even big box stores? Restore their property rights to say, get the hell out of here. You can't overdose and die 
or throw up or urinate on yourself in front of my store, pal. Well, that's right. And uh, property rights, legally speaking, do back that up. Uh, unfortunately, politicians have abdicated their responsibility in this in this Absolutely. area and have told police departments not to enforce, not to protect. Uh, and and so this problem has uh, gotten out of hand a, a, a little bit. It has. And you know what, Mike? I've actually talked to politicians. I've talked to city councilmen, city councilwomen about this. And th- what they do say is, yeah, what are the cops going to do? They'll move them a few hundred yards down the road, you know, the homeless person or the drug addicted person or the mentally ill person screaming at people walking by at a restaurant. Um, yep. They move them down the road, but then they're they're under lawsuit threats from the ACLU and these other insane groups who apparently think that there's nothing wrong with people dying in our streets. I don't want to see that. I, as a Christian, I don't want to see people killing themselves you know, on the sidewalk or in front of a business. And it's just inhumane. And I feel like the Liberty community, we got to go past just decriminalize it. Um, This is, these are my thoughts out loud again, not directed at you, but it's, it's a complex problem more so than just get government out of the, out of this process. It is, it is a complex problem. I believe that community, each community uh, needs to decide for itself uh, how it wants to attack this. But you have to start out with the decriminalization first. Now, once you get there, Uh a community can decide whether to allow the private sector to to do its job or uh, does some town want to, in effect, uh, step up to the plate and and subsidize uh, something that will help the private sector reach out uh, in these areas. Yeah. And that's a mix uh, that I will defer to each town on. Sure. I do believe that in the long run, we will end up back where we were 100 years ago, hmm. which is to say we tried moving this into the public sector. The public sector took it over and didn't do a very good job with it. Yeah. And it's going to wind up back with the, uh, the, the churches, the community-oriented uh, organizations, that want to provide a safety net, I believe in the long run, that's where it's going to wind up again. Yeah. But we need that competition, in effect, among ideas. And that can only take place once we get criminalization out of it. Yeah. And to your point, uh, we need to enforce the property rights of those individuals who uh, don't want people camping out on their front yards. Yeah. Which uh, it, it destroys business. It makes it filthy. You know, these people, the bums and the homeless people, they leave trash everywhere, um, on private property right. and they dissuade customers, um, that, you know, I've been eating. And as you know, yeah. Yeah. And, and as you know, and everybody in California is learning, you have a competition among towns ideas now. Yes. Uh, People are leaving San Francisco in the area correct? Uh, because they don't like the way that it's been handled. If people don't learn that lesson real quick, San Francisco is going to be a hell of a lot smaller in 10 years than it was 10 years ago. Yes, that's right. That's right. And right now they're facing, and a lot of our Californian cities are facing the problems of camping and homelessness in, in and on public property. And this is another right. fun one. This is another interesting one um, for mainline libertarians to, to, to worry about and to think about. Because this idea of public property doesn't mean anyone can go camp out on, on the street. How about in the middle of the road? That's public property, right? We all own it, you know, in scare quotes. Well, do you have a right to set up a tent and do drugs on the sidewalk or in the middle of the street? Well, communities are going to have to decide uh, these sorts of things uh, for themselves. If they want a road on which you can drive an automobile, they're going to have to make a rule that says uh, you can't stand in the middle of the road and you're going to have to pay someone to enforce that rule. Sure. Now, if you don't want that rule, then, you know, knock yourself out. We'll see how many people want to live in your town. Correct. Yeah. The, The other thing that needs to be said is, if you really can't come up with a set of rules and enforcement mechanisms that make your public property work, mm-hmm. if you just can't bring yourself to keep people from uh, camping in the park, for example, yeah, well, then you're going to have to spend a little bit of time thinking about whether or not that should be public property. Right. 
you know, maybe you should take that property and sell it into the private sector and let someone else make these decisions. If the decisions you're making, the people in your community just don't think are in the best interest of that community. Yeah. And we can and avoid, the the, we, we can, sorry to interrupt there, but I'm just thinking we yeah. can avoid the tragedy of the commons. When we all own that park, it's like, well, they're dealing drugs over on the corner of the park, but you know, I'll keep my kids away or, or whatever. Oh, look, there's litter over there. There's some graffiti, you know, people kind of tolerate stuff a little bit more or a lot more when it's not perceived as really their own property. Right. Well, that's exactly right. And, and the, the market failures of the commons are true. There's, there's no getting around that, but a community can decide how much commons it wants to have. Yes. So if your commons just uh, ain't working, maybe it's time to sell it. Yes. Yeah. Privatize it, sell it, or at least I, I like what you're saying, keep things local and decentralized. So if the community can it still, has to be. if they can still come together and they can meet eye to eye and hash it out in a town council or city council meeting or a neighborhood council meeting, then that's a much better solution than just a one size fits all state or federal policy, obviously, where you right. never, there's, there's no, you never have recourse. There's, there's almost with, no way that a state can get this right. Correct. There's absolutely no way a, a federal government can get this right. There's almost no way a state government can get this right. The best that a state can do is to back up every community's right to make rules uh, for itself. That's right. that's the most that you can ask for from a state. Right, and, and prevent uh, violence, force, fraud, or you know, uh, discrimination in any public or government entity. And like I say, course. I do believe that this states need to change their uh, rules to allow private sector organizations to bid on law enforcement uh, agency contracts. Very good. Yeah, very very good. Um, yeah, that's this is definitely one of my uh, one of my big interests. You know, it's kind of this concept of almost anarcho tyranny that. If the homeless are drug addicted or mentally ill who do need help, if they're allowed to camp on public property or harass people, they're kind of, you know, a lot of cops will look the other way. But yet, if maybe you or I go do something similar, they'll say, hey, that guy, what's he doing? You know, there's going to be differing enforcement. Um, Law abiding people tend to be cracked down on, ironically, versus drug addled, mentally ill folks kind of get a pass. No, you're absolutely right. It's strange. Cops feel... Cops feel like they don't have, uh, you know, the the tool in the toolbox. Yes, yeah, that's right. You know, they so often you feel like you don't know what to uh, to do with them. Yes, uh, let me and communities communities need to be able to provide that. Very and cops good. are willing. Uh, when I was in Broward County, I was more than happy to bring someone uh, to a private uh, facility. Yes. You know, yeah. if we had someone that was homeless, you know, all the time, we would say, you know, I'll give you a ride. Yeah. You know, this, right. the city is happy to pay for me uh, to take uh, a half an hour and give you a lift to to a facility. And once in a while, someone would take you up on that. That's a very good thing. Yes. Yeah. And that and that really kind of completes the circle as police officers, as public servants, not just the authority with the baton who's here to crack down and bring you to prison, uh, of course. Which is why, of course, the vast majority of people who become police officers become police officers. To serve their communities, in other words. To serve their communities. Yes. Absolutely. Right. And they have... We need a lot of changes in the way that we train individuals. Yes. Uh, and, and that's, that's, that's on the railroad tracks. It's just an engine that's pulling very slowly. Yes. And police officers have spouses. They have kids in the community. I, I don't doubt that many of them just are out there and wanting to keep the the community or their city or town safe. Um, oh yeah. So let me ask uh, on a few other issues here, um, Mike, with the, the time that we have left, it looks like you're a big supporter of nullification and I assume states rights. Um, is that correct? Uh, it is 100% correct. Uh, the platform that I am running on, we call the Gold New Deal. Uh, we're obviously poking a little bit of fun yeah. at the AOC's Green New Deal. Right. Uh, we're rejecting the original New Deal under Roosevelt. And there's but no gold confiscation believe- I'm this time, right? <laughs> that's, that's right. I'm going that's- out on a limb here, Mike. <laughs> yeah, you, you, got, you got all that right. The idea is that we do need something that transformational, though. We believe that we need a fundamentally new relationship between us and the government, especially the federal government, but also uh, between us and state governments, 
importantly, between state governments and the federal government that you just mentioned. And uh, I'll throw this one on the pile. We need a new relationship between our federal government and the rest of the world. Yes. Uh, yeah. Americans and the rest of the world are ready for a real, true anti-war message, a message that runs against the military interventionism that we've had plague our foreign policy for century, yeah. uh, for at least decades. Yeah. I think the American people are ready for that, and we're ready to deliver it. But the 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 big kernel of an idea inside the Gold New Deal, from which all the other ideas uh, spring, is that we believe that there should be a constitutional amendment that allows states to opt out of federal supremacy and opt into uh, an ability to unilaterally nullify federal law where it's in conflict with, uh, with state law and for those conflicts to be resolved in state court, not in federal courts. Mm-hmm. Right. It, is, it has been said, uh, friends of mine who tease me, right, will say, well, this sounds a lot like what the 10th Amendment was intended to do. Why don't we just pass the 10th Amendment over again and say, this time we mean it? Yeah, right. Um, right. Which, uh, which is a fine idea with me, but I, I don't think it would work a whole lot better in the long run than the last time we passed the 10th Amendment. Yeah, yeah. So we, we think that we need a, a slightly different format to push that idea, but it's all about decentralization. Yeah, I love it's it. It's about limiting the federal government power, not only requiring all military interventionism to have a declaration of war behind it, but also for that declaration of war to be backed up by a vote among the states themselves. We believe yes. that in addition to ending the Fed that we talked about, uh, we need to end the IRS, not because the agency itself, not because the people that work there are evil, but it just represents a relationship between the federal government and individuals that I think is wholly inappropriate. The federal government should be going to states for revenue to the extent to which the federal government needs any revenue at all, right. should be going to states, not to individuals. Fully agree. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. Get back to kind of our uh, constitutional underpinnings, right? Uh, there, was, absolutely. there was no direct tax that was initially supposed to be allowed under the Constitution. I know, obviously, we changed that uh, with the awful progressive movement over the past hundred plus years. Well, you're exactly right. And, and so I'm separating this from the notion that the government should be spending less. Yes. Absolutely, the government should be spending less. Yes. I do believe that we need to cap federal spending uh, as well as changing monetary policy, as we discussed. But to the extent to which the government raises money, it should not be from individuals. Anyone who's ever been audited by the IRS, as I have, knows it's a, it's a lopsided fight, right? Yeah. It's a... It's an unnerving experience, even if you haven't done anything wrong, just because the IRS is one of the most powerful police organizations in the world. It has its own courts. Uh, its victims are presumed guilty unless they can prove that they are innocent. Guilty until proven innocent. That's right. Yeah, I was just talking about this with my dad. Yeah. It's, uh, it's very uh, backward. I, I just think it's constitutionally... Inappropriate. The wage garnishing, it's, you know, it's it's akin to like a civil it's, asset it's forfeiture. It is un-American. Absolutely. It's it's really un-American. It's really unfortunate. So that's just an example of institutional change that we need uh, as opposed to tweaking. Yeah. No, I, I love to hear that. Um, of course, now we're both going to be audited, Mike. So God forbid. Uh, <laughs> They're listening, Yeah, Greg. The IRS is a big part of my, uh, my growing audience here on this podcast, right? <laughs> I, oh. I wouldn't be surprised. And again, NSA is collecting uh, I have, all this. Yeah. I have no more grudge against IRS agents than I do Fed economists. But I do believe that if if uh, if a libertarian were elected president of the United States, which I do believe will be the, the case in the next 12 years, um, they should polish up their resumes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And yeah, maybe begin uh, considering a, a change in careers or whatnot. Um, I, I think it's time. Yeah. And so, Mike, let me ask you um, really quickly in our remaining a few minutes here, you jumped into the to the LP race. Um, is there a particular uh, caucus or group within the the party that you're, you're involved with or caucusing with, like the Mises caucus or, or some of the other groups? Or are you are you a broad broad tent LP member? Um, are you familiar with all, all of that and more? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Let me let me say yes to the first one, the second one, and the third one. Okay. Um, Fair enough. I I am a big believer in the caucus idea. Uh, I know a lot of people hate the idea of there being caucuses. Uh, I don't mind the caucuses. Um, I've been a, a member of the Mises Caucus for a couple of years now. Cool. I do believe in all of the reasons why the caucus was originated, which is to say frustration with the way presidential elections, national campaigns had been run in the past. Yes. Uh, I believe in that wholeheartedly. Um, I know that there are people who are frustrated with some of the tactics employed by the Mises Caucus, uh, some of the things that were said ostensibly on behalf of the Mises Caucus. But I can tell you, in addition to reminding you that every group is going to have a couple individuals who choose tactics or language that we don't like, right. I would remind you that the energy in the Mises Caucus has been a real positive force for our party. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it has been pushing in what I believe is the right direction, which is for our presidential campaigns to be run on a real principled basis. I'm also a member of the other caucuses, and I enjoy very much participating with them. I think they have terrific energy. Uh, they hold each other accountable. They call each other out. Um those caucuses have not given me a hard time for being a member of the Mises caucus. Yeah. They know that I participate with them uh, in good faith. And I'm also a big believer in the idea that our party needs to be more of a big tent. Um, yes. We have not always done a great job of signaling to people on the edges of libertarianism that we want them in our party. Yes. And we do. Thank you, Mike. You know, yeah. just, yeah. Just because I feel a certain way uh, doesn't mean that you need to agree with everything I say to be a member of the party. Sure. Right. And, um, and Mike, I'll tell you too, if I could just jump in there for myself, yeah. you know, always being on, being on the fringes, being a libertarian leaning person, but certainly someone from the right. Um, so I feel much more comfortable, much more at home with the Ron Paul um, and the Lou Rockwell and kind of the Mises caucus wing of things. And I think, sure, sure, sure. I really think that, you know, provided we, we can agree on certain really important liberty issues, that there should be a more welcoming environment to um, not only kind of the culturally more libertine or liberally minded folks, but also some of the folks who would kind of line up more with, with Ron Paul or the paleo libertarians from the paleo side. I, I think yep. the idea of a big tent is, yeah, let's bring over free market conservatives. Let's bring over yeah. traditional libertarians who have always been here, and let's let's bring everyone yeah. together under a few shared um, ideas. Is that right? Yeah. And I think that we're going to get better at that over time. Um, it was real interesting. I recently uh, heard Angela McArdle, our chairwoman, talking about the outreach that she has done for single issue purposes, single issue coalition yes. building. Yeah, yeah. To organizations on the left, I super proud of the work that she has done there. Uh, you know, she put together with others, of course, uh, the Rage Against War Machine rally in Washington a couple of months back. Right. It was a nice event, very successful. My campaign couldn't be more proud of of the opportunity that we had to serve as a sponsor. Yes, and and I was there. I saw it work. Uh, you know, while it was being built, I saw the the consternation, the concerns, the challenges that had to be overcome in working with another party. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to suggest that isn't real or to minimize those challenges. But she was able to pull that off. And I give her all kinds of kudos. And it makes me wonder whether over time that will lead to bringing some folks into our party, convincing people who are in parties adjacent to us that they should uh, be convinced to, to join our party. I look forward to that, possibly. I, and to your point, uh, conservative, fiscal conservatives, for example, we should be continuing to recruit from the Republican Party. Correct. I believe that we should be recruiting real hard from the Democratic Party in the sense that that party is no longer socially liberal. Yes. In any really meaningful sense. Um, There's a big radical you know, element just, now, like the woke. The woke left is very different than the economic old line uh, socialist left, in, in my opinion. 
it is very different and it's uh frankly a little weird as much as you and i may think that socialists are weird and and they are (laughs) yeah um this other thing i find weirder still and i think that there's a lot of uh i think there are a lot of people inside the democratic party who are naturally socially liberal who would be more comfortable in the libertarian party correct uh, who don't run around canceling each other, who don't believe some of the silly things that you are required to verbalize to remain in uh, good woke standing. Yes. I think yeah. that we're in more of a natural home to many of those people, even if they don't agree with us on 100% of what you and I might think is yeah. good libertarian dogma. Well, how about how about even uh, RFK, RFK Jr.? I find that um, him or Naomi Wolf, some of these old school kind of traditional liberals – I'm listening to them again and I'm thinking like, okay, maybe the Demo, you know, they still identify as Democrats for whatever reason, but yeah. maybe those are like the Democrats who are still sane and who are actually saying, I stand up for civil liberties. I stand up against authoritarianism and medical coercion yeah. and corporatism. How about that? How about we bring back the good liberals and the good left instead of the woke, yeah, insane I think those, left? I think some of those people would naturally be more comfortable in our party. I think I so. I really do. Yeah. And again, um, going back to the big tent idea, Mike, that you mentioned, I, I, yeah, I like that. I, I think that you and I, if if you and I were locked in a room with, say, RFK2, I think that uh, eventually we would punch each other in the face over some economic issues. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, I do believe that a guy like that is, you know, nose punching over economics notwithstanding, I think huh. that he'd be in the, in the long run, more comfortable in our party than, than the silly party he's in now. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think absolutely. There's a lot of overlap there for people just that want to resist coercion and authoritarianism and tyranny. It's, it's bigger than, than even some of the other economic issues that you mentioned. Um, well, and, and if you look at the broad scope that each of the other legacy parties covers, um, they go pretty broad in terms of how big their respective tents are. Yeah. We should be willing to be that broad as well if we want to play a major role in American politics as I believe we are destined to play. Right. Right. And and there's got to be a bigger role uh one would hope. Um y- oh, we'll I think see. there is. I think we'll that I think uh we have a huge opportunity in 2024. I think data back this up, not just anecdotally, but polling data show that people are more open to a third party than ever before. They're frustrated with the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. And for good reason, those parties are both moving toward authoritarianism. They both have crappy leadership, objectively speaking. Uh, They no longer adhere to what had been their agenda even a, even as recently as a decade ago, now each one of them supports as their number one plank suppressing the other party. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, is where authoritarianism comes from. And as the party that stands against authoritarianism, I think that plays into our wheelhouse. So I think that we have a real opportunity here, but we need to play it right. I think that we need to, pl- uh, to, to lead with policy. I think that we need to lead with the most transformational ideas. I think that we need to lead with a campaign that's focused on a, a, a public service attitude, a respect for public policy. I think that personally, my background backs that up. I think that's uh, real important. Sometimes it's not all that important to us inside the Libertarian Party, but outside of the Libertarian Party, when you're reaching out to Americans, if they don't believe that you've got the background to go all the way and play an important role, they're not going to pay attention to you. That's so right. that's a threshold issue that I believe our campaign can overcome. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And Mike, let me ask you, I hear that there's a, another possible candidate named Dave Smith, a uh, so-called very failed podcaster, as Michael Malice might say. Um, if he gets into the race, I would love to, to hear you guys have a discussion. And I wonder if there would even be any, any big disagreements or, or, or maybe, maybe there would, but maybe you'd set yourself apart with your experience, your PhD in economics, your uh, reform-minded policing, um, and, and those ideas. 
some of those ideas would be differentiators, and you're right, uh -huh. some of the background would be differentiation. I, I would call him, however, a successful podcaster. I don't think yes. he's an unsuccessful no, podcaster. It's, it's an old joke with Michael Malice, I think. I know it is. Yeah, right. I know it is. And and I, for one, have enjoyed his podcast. Oh, yeah. He, it's great. You know, there are things that uh, he has said that uh, would curl my hair, uh, <laughs> and not necessarily in a good way. Uh -huh. Um so there is a difference, I think, between running a real professional campaign and being a successful podcaster. Right. Uh, but certainly he would be welcome into the process if he felt like engaging it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Real advocate for liberty. Um, and I, I really appreciate all the ideas that, that you're espousing and spreading, uh, Mike. So, Mike, tell us, tell the audience about... Um, your website, your social media, where can they join? Where can they get involved with your campaign or learn more about, about you and what you're up to? Uh, I appreciate that, Greg. We actually have no social media, no website. We're not taking donations, but thanks for asking. Um, I'm kidding, of course. Okay. I'm like, wait a minute uh, here. Time out. <laughs> time, time out. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you can find us on Twitter at, at, at Termat Mike. Of course, you'd have okay. to spell it right, right? It's T-E-R-M-A-A-T. Two A's. Two A's, everybody. Two A's. It's a Dutch name. You can find us uh, on on the World Wide Web, as we used to say, right? Uh, MikeTremont.com. The Gold New Deal is separately branded. You can you can learn about our platform by going to MikeTremont.com and then clicking into our platform, or you can go straight to the Gold New Deal, GoldNewDeal.org. Uh, don't go to GoldNewDeal.com because they'll try to sell you something. Okay. Which is, which is not necessarily a bad idea. It's just the wrong website. Right, right, right. Uh, go to goldnewdeal.org. You can find us uh, there. Um, get involved. Reach out to me. Uh, my email address is listed there. That's my real email address. By the way, my real phone number is listed there. Uh, if anyone in your audience feels like dropping me a text, uh Give me a call on the phone. Sometimes I answer it, even if I don't know who it is, but uh, drop me a text first and I'll be sure to call you back. Cool. Uh, drop me an email. Tell me what you think. If you hate the Gold New Deal, tell me why so I can tell you to go pound sand or we can work it out. Um, if you love the Gold New Deal, maybe I'll still tell you to go pound sand, but we can work that out too. And what if you love like Paul Krugman and you just really think the ideas of... Uh... Your economics are Then I'm going to give him your cell phone number because <laughs> right. you can work it out with him. Right. That'll be a long phone call. But uh, that's going to be, a, that, that might take a while. Right. Uh, I'll uh, send him over to Bob Murphy uh, to set him straight. That's a very good idea. Sending him to Bob Murphy is an excellent idea. But like I say, I would, anyone who, who comes to me and says they're a Krugman fan, I'm going to give them uh, a link to your website. Perfect. And make them uh, watch some more of your videos. Awesome. Awesome. Um, Mike, I, I really appreciate your time here today and hopefully we can talk again as the, the campaign un unfolds over the next, uh, well, the next several months, um, into the next year. I would really enjoy that. I would look forward to that. I think things are going to feel very differently, uh, 52 weeks from today. Very cool. And that is, uh, that is almost certainly a true statement. Um, but yeah, I really appreciate your, your time. Once again, Mike Termat, everybody go check out his website and social media and, um, until we talk again, Mike, uh, thank you very much. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Greg. You have a great program. I just couldn't be any happier to, to be a part of it. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. This has been the California Liberty Project Podcast. Make sure to subscribe, share it with others, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter.